We, if you're just joining us today, are going through the book of Acts, the world's greatest construction project. And we're working our way through it uh, piece by piece. We slowed down in the first couple chapters. We'll pick it up over the next few weeks and then slow down again in chapters 5, 6, and 7. But I wanted to get those of you who are just joining with us caught up. Uh, Each week we leave you with works in progress, and, and there's a portion to that of knowing something and doing something. And so uh, over the past four weeks, we've learned from the book of Acts to get caught up into the story. God is working in the world. He's been working since Adam and Eve were created right up till October 12th, 2014. He is at work and he will continue to work, get caught up in his story. And to do so, you need to understand the blueprint of the church. And that was Acts 1, 1 through 14. What is the church and what is the church called to do? And then in 15 through 26, we see the replacement of an apostle. And we needed to recognize that we are important and insignificant, both at the same time. And we hold those in, in a loving, joyful tension. And then in Acts 2, 1 through 41, we get to know the Holy Spirit. He is the third person of the Trinity. He lives inside every believer, and he empowers us to do do the work of a local church. And that, last week, we wanted to be mindful of the essential elements of a local church, that we're a learning church. We go to God's authority, God's word, which is authority. We are a loving church, that we share each other's burdens. We are a worshiping church. Uh, Worship is not just when we sing songs. Worship is a way of life. We are a working church, though that wasn't in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Uh, Ephesians 4 just talks about us building up the body of Christ, serving each other with our gifts. And we are a witnessing church that it's not in-house, but we are to go from here into the world. That is what we should know. Here's what we should do. Not only should we get caught up in God's story, we should be involved in Jesus' community. And that we need to build his kingdom here. And to do so, we need to plan diligently. It is good to plan. It is good to have structure. Trusting in God's providence that things may not always go as planned. And if we know the Holy Spirit, we're to work by his power, keeping in step with him. And finally, uh, we don't want to make caricatures of the local church. That the local church should have those five things. But we don't want to exalt one at the expense of the other as we saw last week. And so if you were to summarize just in one short sentence what what these first three chapters are about is in Acts 1, Jesus went up. In Acts 2, the Spirit comes down. And you will see here in Acts 3 that the apostles go out. A summary of chapter 1 would be this, the ongoing work of Jesus. So it didn't stop when he ascended into heaven. But his ongoing work is done by the power of the Spirit through the chosen people of God. In Acts 2, when that When he, the Holy Spirit, moves and the scriptures, God's authoritative word is preached, souls are saved and the church is built. And so today we're going to see a miracle. We're going to see a miracle of restoration and it's going to authenticate the message of repentance. And that is where I will want to camp today on this issue of repentance. It is my goal that you walk away from here changed in your understanding and your application of the idea and the doctrine of repentance. Because repentance gets such a negative rap in the Christian church today. And I I want you to walk away from here thinking, I want to repent. 
And when I do let God down or when I do sin, I know that through repentance, certain things will happen. I can't tell you the whole answer right now. Otherwise, you'd check out and go home. So I'll keep you coming along for a little bit more. And that message of repentance demands man's response. And so we're going to see some characters in here. You're going to see a crippled man. You're going to see Peter and John. You're going to see this crowd gather, and you're going to see this council uh, opposing the message of the gospel. And you'll see the ongoing work of the ministry of Jesus, that he did miracles and he had a message. You'll see the ministry of the apostles is much like that, that God is declaring the work of the local church to be in sync with what he wants to happen on planet Earth. And so we begin in chapter 3, verse 1. Let me pray. Father, this is your word. I pray for you to send your spirit now and to do a work in our hearts. That is 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, your word does its work in believers, and I pray that that would happen this morning. I pray that we would walk away with here with a right understanding of repentance, a joyful attitude to acknowledging our sinfulness, because we see that it is covered in the cross. Our sins are gone. And that we can have sweet fellowship with you and with one another should we understand and apply the doctrine of repentance. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. They were going to the temple. The apostles were trying to change Judaism from the inside out. At first, they didn't establish these local churches. They weren't us for no more Methobacterian church. That was a combination of all the caricatures last week. They went back to their roots and they tried to change it from the inside. Obviously and eventually, you know that this didn't work. And so they established the local church, but they started at home. In a similar way, Martin Luther When he was saved by grace, the monk was saved by grace. He didn't start to go and change and go outside the Catholic Church. He started within, and he saw that he got to a point where he couldn't make changes, and that's why he put the 95 Theses on the door October 31st, 1517. We've got 19 days and a long time ago. (laughs) not going to try to do that math. That... That is why we are here and we are Protestants. It's because that man went to the church at Wittenberg and he, he nailed those theses to the door. And he wasn't trying to say, I'm going to go over here and do my own thing. He said, we need to work through these things together. And so in the same way, Peter and John, they go up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Interesting. Too many times... These days, for Christians, it's hip and trendy to say, yeah, I desire relationship over religion. Or unbelievers say, you hear it often and over and over again, I'm spiritual, but not religious. But the problem is the Bible says nothing against religion. The Bible doesn't pit religion against relationship. In fact, James said true religion, and he defines it. And so we shouldn't try to pit religion versus relationship. And you see, they're going to the temple at the hour of prayer. They're going to a regularly assigned time to pray, the ninth hour that we know is 3 p.m. Daryl Bach, who wrote the commentary on Luke and Acts, 
is the two times that they would go to pray are 9 in the morning and 3 p.m. And so if 6 a.m. started the traditional Jewish day, the ninth hour, nine hours later, is 3 p.m. Formal religion is not to be discarded. It needs to be tied to the world, constantly held in check and reformed if necessary. But order and structure are not opposed to grace and freedom. Did you catch that? Order and structure are not opposed to grace and freedom. And so they go up as they were doing in an orderly manner, as an appointed manner. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Most commentators take this to be the Nicanor gate. It was heavenly adorned and frequently traveled. It was called the beautiful gate because it was adorned with lots of jewels. And so this man was being carried because he'd be set there hoping that someone would show him some compassion. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Can you give me some alms? And alms in verse 6 is defined as gold and silver. Can you give me some money? Because I am helpless. He wanted a handout. He was concerned with the here and now. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. He was looking to survive, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And so if you know Charles Stanley often, he says, listen to me, to draw your attention. And that is what Peter and John did. They looked, and they said, look at us. And this man, lame from birth, literally lame from his mother's womb, and he fixed his attention on them, Peter and John, expecting to receive some alms. He, he, you could imagine him pulling his hand out to receive it. And Peter says, but Peter said, the contrast here, expecting to receive, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Peter is not merely concerned with making this man survive for one day. He's not concerned with the temporal. He's concerned with the eternal. And this is what Peter says. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Notice what Peter didn't say. Hocus pocus dilly docus. He said in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter didn't say abracadabra. Though I did a little research on abracadabra. It's my job to figure out why people say things they do. <laughs> Abracadabra is an incantation used in magic uh, for stage tricks, historically believed to have healing powers when inscribed on an amulet. Did you know that? Wikipedia tells me everything. It says it comes from the Aramaic, I create as I speak, but people are in debate even on Wikipedia about that, and it comes down to this. The phrase translates more accurately as it came to pass, as it was spoken. And so I would say, if there's one person in the world, when he lived on earth, who could say, abracadabra, that would have been our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But he never did. And Peter and John don't say abracadabra. They say, in the name of Jesus Christ, catch this, don't miss this, Bible study methods, this chapter says it four times, rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. There it is the second time. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. He expects to receive alms and he receives his legs. Notice it said immediately his feet and ankles were strong. This was a supernatural, extraordinary event. It happened to himself. He didn't make himself strong. I think of a picture of a man who rides his bike around Eagle Ranch. And every time I see him, if I'm close enough, I'll roll down my window and say, you go, boy. Because this man was involved in an accident. And the doctor said, you will never walk again. And he says, oh, really? And he's riding his bike and it takes him two hours to get around that short mile. But he's doing it. Proving people wrong. And through his hard work and effort, he, I hope, one day will walk again. But here, it happens immediately. Peter didn't say, well, I want you to go through this uh, PT routine. If you'll just take my strap here and do your ankle that way and this way and forward. Immediately, his feet and ankles were made strong. Rise up from your dead state of sitting and walk in newness of life. Don't miss this. Don't miss the salvation picture here. This man's legs were dead from his mother's womb, from birth. And in the name of Jesus, he is raised to walk in newness of life. Look at Ephesians, if you would, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's see if that language is common in the Bible. It absolutely is. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it's up there for you. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, Like the rest of mankind, we were lame, dead, unable to move. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, watch this, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then those classic three verses, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. That leaping Lenny, as I'm calling him, that you will see in a minute, wasn't healed because he worked hard. It's because of God's sovereign grace. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, beforehand, and notice that we should walk in them. Now back to Acts 3. And leaping up, verse 8, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. Walking, repeated twice, and leaping, second time for that, and praising God. And when people saw him walking and praising, they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate 
of the temple asking for alms. That's Leith and Lenny. Well, they didn't call him Leith. That's Lenny. Uh, Lenny's been here for years. He's never been able to do this. And that's absolutely amazing. Those two guys said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And so Leap and Lenny, I want to show you the progression that he's seated. He's sitting helpless. He asks for money, but he stands miraculously. He walks with the apostles on his own. He leaps for joy and he praises God. And the key is Jesus' ongoing ministry. Jesus brings new life through the local church. Jesus brings new life through the local church. Uh, that section, verse 10, is often preached on its own and, and left. Uh, you, you get six days until you get 11 through the rest of the chapter, but I don't think it's a good way to do it because there is a connection between the two. There is a connection between the two. Look at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, this is Leap and Lenny. He's clinging to him. Wouldn't you, had you not been able to walk for all your life, and now you're leaping for joy, praising God, and these two guys were just used by God to give you new life to your legs. He's clinging to them. And all the people, utterly astonished, full of wonder and amazement, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And so I give you a picture here of the beautiful gate and Solomon's porch. There's the beautiful gate. As he's getting ready to go, they're getting ready to go into the temple there and worship. There's Solomon's portico, this pillared, vast area where people would meet. Solomon has a portico. I have a porch. You know the difference. And so this guy's clinging to Peter and John. All the people are gathered. And when Peter saw it, when Peter saw it, verse 12, what did he see when he saw this crowd gathering? When he saw this man clinging to them, he addressed the people. Notice the, the vital connection here. Acts 1 through 10 is the miracle. Acts 11 through 26 is the message. It is not good to separate them. This man was clinging to them. Everybody's gathering around and Peter saw this is a time to preach the good news. The public display of God's power was so that the message of the gospel could go first. The visual act points to a deeper reality. The miracle points to the message. The event needs an explanation. And so here Peter goes. At first, you're going to see him give a defense in 13, and then you're going to see him go on the offense, right? Every good coach knows you need to have both. And here's his defense, his apologetics, if you will. He takes an event that happened in the world, and he ties it to the word of God. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or better yet, why do you wonder at this one? That would be a better interpretation. It's as if Peter is pointing to Leap and Lenny who's clinging to him. He said, why are you astounded and astonished at this one? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we made him walk? Leap and Lenny did not stand up on his own and Peter and John did not do the miracle on their own much like Daniel the prophet, when he was called upon, he said, 
It is not me who interprets dreams, but the God whom I serve will give you an answer. My friends, be leery of any, quote, miracle workers who do not preach Jesus in obedience. And so Peter says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, there's the law, glorified his servant Jesus. He's tying it. Some think this is Isaiah 52, 13. There's the prophets. So in one short phrase, Peter gives them the whole Old Testament, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. There are the Gospels. Everything centers on Jesus. The God glorified his servant Jesus, but you, friends, you denied the holy and righteous one, asked for a murderer to be granted to you, killed the author of life, whom God noticed, this is the third time you see it in this passage, raised from to the dead. To this we are witnesses. And here he ties the world event to the scripture and he shows you why is Leap and Lenny, how did that come about? And his name, by faith in his name, that is Jesus, he has made this man strong whom you see now. And the faith, that is what happened. Leap and Lenny didn't look do anything. He looked right at Peter and John and he believed that they could do it. Faith that is through Jesus has given this man, notice what it gave him, perfect health. Perfect health. Holo Krarion. Jesus makes us whole again. He's making all things new. And he did it in the presence of you all. Again, when Leap and Lanny got up, he was not standing there going, man, they're a little stiff. I need to do some exercises. Perfect health. Total restoration. They denied him. They desired something else. They wanted the murderer of life instead of the author of life. And they killed Jesus. But it's by faith in his name. Not only did he come back to walking, but he was in, as the Bible says, perfect health. It was a taste of what's to come. No wonder. And so what's in a name? I mean, really, what's in a name? Let's just look at the, at the text. What does the text say? We're not even going to go through the whole Bible. We're just going to look at 13, 14, 15. Verse 13, he is a, he's the, his servant, Jesus. Jesus is a servant. But you denied the holy and righteous one. Jesus is a holy servant. Jesus is a righteous servant. Jesus is the author of life. Jesus is a holy and righteous servant who authors life. He serves. He is submitted to his father. He is holy. He is utterly set apart. He is righteous. He does all things well. He does everything right. And he is the author of life. He comes to give life, not take it. And so you go, he, Peter goes from the event that happens. He ties it to the word of God. And now in 17, he's going to go and preach to the heart. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. All throughout the New Testament, I won't go into it, but there's a theology of ignorance. Paul said it himself in 1 Corinthians 
uh, or not First Corinthians, First Timothy 1.13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. First Peter says in First Peter 1.14, as obedient children not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And so Peter shows them, he connects the, the vent, the miracle to the message, and he calls them to repentance. You acted in ignorance, but God, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. God made a promise and God kept his promise. And this, I think, the next three verses are the center of the text. I don't think the text is centered on the miracle. I think it's centered on what Peter says in verses 19 through 21. He takes a world event, he connects it to the word of God, and he takes the word of God and he calls people to action. This is the critical part of the sermon. The miracle points to the message and the message calls for something. And look what he says here. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. First Peter, it's no wonder. This is Peter's second sermon in Acts, and he goes on to write a letter later, said this, and it's not up there, just listen. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so the gospel goes out, it is preached, and we are called to repent. And there are three things that happen when we repent. And this, I hope, is a source of encouragement to you, as it has been to me. Repent, therefore, Go back to the text there for a second. Repent, therefore, and turn back. That's what it means to repent. Repent, repent means to turn. It means I'm going down this road, and if I repent, I turn and go the opposite direction. So if I'm going down 70 and I miss my turn in eagle, I must repent in gypsum, right? Because that's the next time to turn around and come back to where I should be. Not to say that going to gypsum is going down the wrong way. Don't read into that. That just came to me, and I have to clarify that for those of you that live in the GYP. But that your sins are blotted out. David said it like this, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God in the New. He blots out your sins. It is wrong to say God forgets your sins. He can't forget. He is God. And you can't hide your sins from him. I'm sure you might have seen the Valspar Reserve Paint commercial where the father is there with the three kids and they look like they've got it all together on the computer screen. And mama's out of town and we got it all going on. And she hangs up, he closes the laptop, and there's just stuff everywhere. They were trying to hide their sin from mom. And they have this paint that's easily wiped with like a magic eraser. 
God takes a magic eraser soaked in the blood of Jesus and wipes your sin-stained heart free. I think it's better said like this. Got this Thursday night. I'm done. Burn them. God is the inventor of whiteout. Huh? That's good. I'd take it even a step further. It's not just whiteout because if, if I were, and I was thinking about bringing whiteout and showing you a piece of paper, but if I had a, a whiteout for all the sins on my, the sheet of paper called my life, it'd be really thick and heavy and you couldn't do much on it. He does more than just whiteout. He restores it to perfect health. And that's not it. That's not the only thing. Notice, just follow the language. Repent and turn, that your sins may be blotted out. That, watch this, that times of refreshing may come. Times of refreshing may come. What? When I repent, when I do what the fawns couldn't do, I'm He could never bring himself to say he was wrong. When you say, I'm wrong, I missed the mark. I've not only sinned against God, but I've sinned against you. Times of refreshing come. Literally, it's times of cooling. And so when I was outside as a kid and didn't listen to my mother and put on sunscreen, mama put solar candles on my sunburn. Times of cooling, times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And that is not the only thing that he may send the Christ appointed for you. And now let's look at the next side, the results of repentance. Your sins and my sins are erased. They're wiped clean, friends. Erased. If you come to me and say, I just can't because my pet, it's done. But I, mm -mm. you don't under, I do. And times of refreshing come. That there, there are refreshing times for you when that happens. That's one of my favorite, all of them are my favorite, but today my favorite one is verse 20. Times of refreshing come when we repent. And don't miss this, this is huge. Go back to the verses again, just so you can see the, repent therefore in turn, to that, that, but look at the third that, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. What? You mean tied to our repentance is the return of Jesus. That's what it says. That he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive. He had to ascend until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. God knows the exact time, but every time we repent and every time an unbeliever comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's one step closer to him returning. Do you see how grand it is when we get over the fact that we have to, oh, I have to admit I'm wrong, get over it. You're taking part in a greater story. Wow. Is this, is this just... Now go back to those three. Just see them again. The results of repentance is your sins are gone. Please don't live there anymore. And if you need to talk about it, I'm happy to go get a coffee. And I battled it too. You may, let's not live there. It doesn't matter what you've done. Are there consequences? Yes, we'll work through them. 
but your sins are done. Don't think God can't use you because of your past. David would go on in Psalm 51 to say, that I may teach transgressors their ways. He was, he was sinned, he was forgiven, his sins were blotted out, and he taught transgressors their ways. Your sins are erased, times of refreshing come, and you're taking part in Christ's return. Is this old? I mean, is this just New Testament stuff or is it in the old? Well, look at Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I had a guy come to me a couple years ago. He was struggling with something. We sat on my front porch and, and you, could, you could tell. A little nervous, but he wanted to talk to me about something, confess some things, and we turned to this passage. And I said, brother, when you conceal your transgressions, you will not prosper, but you confess them and forsake them that you've obtained mercy. There was refreshment came to him that day. And Titus says it. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? Notice the Holy Spirit is involved in these times of refreshing by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The results of repentance is that your sins are re erased, the times are refreshed, and Christ is coming to make all things new. And then Peter goes on, because he doesn't want... He didn't want the Jews to miss it. Luke wrote it because he didn't want Theophilus to miss it. And the Holy Spirit, who oversaw the whole project, didn't want us to miss it. He gives two illustrations from the Old Testament. One, Deuteronomy 18, 15. One, Genesis 22, 18. He wraps them up in five verses. And again, for the third and fourth time, watch the phrase. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and do in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And so along with this great grace that is given, there is also judgment to come. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. What are these days? The days of what Paul or Peter and John are doing here. They're working out the, uh, the ministry of Jesus through the local church. Peter says, you're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. Paul said it like this in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to bless you, Jews, by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Old Testament quotes are purposeful. The fruit of Christianity finds its root in Judaism, we, the church, are legitimate because we are just the extension of what happened in the Old Testament. And every Jew who follows by faith, not by works, every Jew who follows the Old Testament by faith should end up a Christian. That's how it's written, by faith. But Paul would say in Romans 10, they don't try so by faith, they do it by works. And so... That is chapter 3, and we must dip into chapter 4 just a little bit to see the responses 
You have the miracle of restoration. You have the message of repentance. And here's man's response. And as they were speaking to the people. So again, this is all tied together. It's a story. It's working itself out. The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. This council, the law, the leader of worship, and the Sadducees came upon them. And they were happy because Peter and John were doing a wonderful work in Jesus and they repented of their sins too. Wait, that's, that's not what it says. I'm sorry, I got caught up in, no, greatly annoyed. Annoyed. Why? The answer's right there. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And then they arrested them, Peter and John, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Good preaching will get you landed in jail. Right? I was at the Shepherd Conference a few years back. Mark Dever said, I'm, and he said it lovingly because he's speaking to pastors. He said, I'm, I'm kind of, guys, kind of tired of, of people coming or wives coming and say, you know, interested about, um, what it's going to take to be in the pastorate, if it's going to be hard, will there be enough money? He said, I think that misses the point. He said he had to tell one wife of one potential pastor, are you ready to be a pastor's widow? Ashley, you ready? She's home with my two boys. They're sick today. But we've talked about it, honey. Are you, you're ready. If, I re, if, if, if it keeps going the way it's going and Romans 1 becomes illegal to preach and I just choose to preach it, now I'm not going to, the day it becomes illegal, going to go, oh, I'm going to preach Romans. I'll show you. But if I'm preaching through, and I, let's say we've preached through 65 books of the Bible and I've got one left, and it's the whole counsel of God, and it's Romans 1, and they know I'm going to preach it, and there's a cop out there, are you ready to take care of my wife? Good preaching will get you thrown in jail. And look at verse 4. But many of those. So you have the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees are annoyed because they're not getting all the press. But many of those who had heard the word believed. They, like Leap and Lenny, believed. They had faith in the name and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And so Peter and John are opposed those who reject Jesus are annoyed. They're, Peter and John are arrested, and many believed. Just a little side note. How did we know there was 120, and then there was 3,000, and now we know there are 5,000? Huh? It's because they kept records, and that's what we're going to do. No, I'm just kidding. It's okay, though, to keep records. How would you know unless you kept records? People, oh, we're not going to count the numbers of the people because God might get a, go against us. We're just going to count. It's good to know. It's okay. They kept records. That's a little side note. But that's not what I want to leave you with. What I want to leave you with is the concept of all of this happening. See, we, we don't do one Sunday 1 through 10 and then one Sunday 11 through 26 and then one Sunday 4, 1 through 4. We put it all together because this all happened in one afternoon. And I wanted you to see the concept of time in the act of repentance. That your sins have been erased. It's a past deal. That times of refreshing come. That's a present reality. If you're here today and you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I would say, like Peter said, repent and turn back that today you may experience refreshing times and that Christ comes to restore all things in the future. Amen? And, and I want to show you, go a little bit deeper in that and show you the original language behind this because I think it'll help you. I know it's helped me. It, just because it's the original language doesn't mean anything. It just adds color. The Kairos, verse 20, said this, that times, that Kairos of refreshing may come. Those are moments of time that defined your life. Like you've heard people say, this is your time. They would be saying if you were Greek, this is your, this is your Kairos. This is it experience. And in verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time, the chronos. They're two different words. Until the chronos, the minutes of time that move life along. I want you to get this. Take time today to live in the kairos, live in the moment, knowing that the chronos is ticking away. Take time today to do that. Because you wonder, you wonder back in what happened. What happened to those who didn't, who were annoyed at the message, who didn't want to repent? They may have missed their chance. And so my challenge for us, our work in progress this week is this. It was mentioned four times, this idea of rising. Rise and walk. For some of you, it may be the first time in refreshing repentance that you and I will live without regret. This week, had lunch with a man who told me about a pastor who died on a mission trip just two months ago. Freak accident. And now there's a church on the front range who's missing their pastor. That's a lunch. Go to a study Thursday night and find out there's a little boy died from a tragic accident involving a, a car. And it grips me as I see my kids running up and down the alley, riding their bikes. And I purposefully pack my car in because it haunts me of what just happened a few days ago might happen to my own kids. That's a Bible study. And then I receive a text that a gentleman who's been in this congregation, not a member, he lives in Texas, but when he's in town, he comes. He's an he's a elder at Denton Bible Church, and he comes to visit. He and his wife come to encourage. He's seen me grow up in the faith. And he falls and he's in a coma. 
and he's probably not going to make it. So why do I put without regret on there? Because those priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees might have regretted not listening to the message of repentance and becoming annoyed with it. Often when we talk about repentance, people get annoyed because what you're saying, right? If, if, we're, if we're going with it biblically, what you're saying is you're wrong. But when I personally confess my sins and repent, times of refreshing come. That's, that's how God has designed it. And so today, my friends, I want to encourage you not to live another moment of your life ever regretting. And I've put some articles out on the front table. One's called 18 Things I Will Not Regret Doing With My Kids. Because you never know, do you? That could have easily been Lawson. So I'm not going to regret praying with him, reading books to him, kissing him goodnight, taking them to church, taking them out to breakfast. I just took Luke to the Eagle Diamond. And they have this thing, Luke and Lawson, because they want to be like Daniel Carden. They want to go to the diner and get hot chocolate with sprinkles and every other sugary item on there. (laughs) Pigs in the blanket, smothered in syrup. And if the Lord should take him right now, if I go home and I got to have breakfast with my boy. And there's other things. And Chowley's also wrote 18 things I will not regret doing with my wife. Praying with her, dating her, serving her, looking back with her, leading her, buying her flowers. Or, you know, some women don't like flowers. Buy her whatever she likes. Holding her hand. R.C. Sproul Jr. just wrote an article. His wife died. And he wrote poignantly about how he regrets not holding his wife's hand more. And so based upon that, and these, these all come across my desk this week. Kevin DeYoung writes, what we won't regret, and I'll end with this. We won't regret playing, out, playing hide and seek with our kids. We won't regret turning off the TV and putting the phone away. We won't regret one night or a week or even a season of life where we let the kids get Happy Meals just so they'd be happy and we could survive. (laughs) We won't regret singing hymns over and over until they become so familiar we can sing them to the saints around a hospital bed. Yeah. We won't regret the time we spent hiding the word in our hearts. We won't regret jumping in a pile of leaves. We could start with our own foyer today. (laughs) The wind blew them in. Pile them up. Jump in them. Make sure the sticks and rocks are out. But do it. We won't regret overlooking a lot of little things that bother us about our spouses. 
We won't regret kissing our spouse in front of the kids. We do it all the time. It's, 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 it's great. It's, it's like uh, every morning it's the same thing. <laughs> See you, Lawson. See you, Luke. See you, Lauren. Hey, baby, come here. No! There they go again. <laughs> we won't regret all the wasted time with friends. We won't regret laughing often and laughing loudly. I think of Chuck Swindoll when I was at the seminary. You, you knew when Chuck Swindoll was in the place because his laugh, it was big and it was great. We won't regret hugging our kids whenever they'll let us. And do it now because I hear they get to an age where they're like, I don't want to do it now. This, is, this one's for my wife. We won't regret being a little goofy. We won't regret asking for forgiveness and won't regret forgetting those who ask. There is, that is, we won't regret repenting. We won't regret dancing at weddings, fast and silly with our kids, slow and sweet with our spouse. We won't regret giving most people the benefit of the doubt. I like how he worded that. We won't regret committing to a good church and sticking around. We won't regret learning to play the piano, read music, and sing in parts. We could put participating in a Christmas play. We won't regret reading to our children. We won't regret spending time in prayer. We won't regret going on long trips filled with frustrations but full of memories. We won't regret letting our kids be kids. They're kids. Mine are 10, 8, and 6, and sometimes I try to make them 20, 18, and 16. We won't regret walking with people through suffering. And I hope, we don't know how it ends, so I can't read too much into it, but I hope the, some of those Sadducees did this final one. They won't regret trusting in Jesus. Father, for some of us, you have made us to rise and walk. You made us to rise and walk spiritually 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. And we thank you. Some may be here today who have never bowed the knee to Jesus and looked in faith upon the greatest miracle today is turning an unbeliever's darkened heart to the light of the kingdom of the glory of his son. Father, help us to repent. Enable us, cause us, as send the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, comfort us with the cross, and help us to communicate that, if need be, to our brothers and sisters. That those sins are erased, the times of refreshing come, and that you would send your Son. Pray that we would do this and live a life without regret. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.